Well, last week we covered uh, the first nine plagues of the Exodus, so that was a lot of ground. Uh, but we're going to slow down a lot on the final plague of the Exodus, uh, which is known as the Passover, because God, the angel of death, passed over his people, did not kill them, but killed the firstborn of the land of Egypt. We won't read about that happening this morning, per se. We'll read about Moses warning Pharaoh that it was going to happen. And then we'll read about the celebration that God instituted before it happened. But we're going to slow down a lot here as we look at the Passover, precisely because God himself places so much significance on the Passover. And because when we look at the whole storyline of the Bible, we see that the Passover relates a great deal to our own lives as Christians and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So this will just be the first of several weeks on the Passover, and in particular what we're going to look at this morning is how when God instituted the Passover after Moses warns Pharaoh what's going to happen, God tells his people that this month will be the first month of the year for you. God installs a whole new calendar. He gives them a new beginning of the year when he installs this Passover. And so what does that mean for us as Christians, that God would place so much emphasis, so much centrality on the Passover itself, and how can we apply this lesson that God teaches to his people through the Passover, how can we apply this lesson to our lives in Jesus Christ? And so as we look at that, um, we're going to read Exodus 11, verse 1, uh, to chapter 12, verse 20. Uh, We'll have three different readers come up and read it for us. And um, again, we're just listening to the story of what God told to Moses, what Moses then told to Pharaoh, and then how God first institutes the celebration of Passover. So let's listen now to the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. Yahweh said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they, that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And Yahweh said, and Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Exodus eleven four to 10 So Moses said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of a slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, as such there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man nor beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes the distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you all, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out in his land. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So as we just read, God warns Pharaoh through Moses of a final plague. God is going to come down upon the land of Egypt. He is going to be that angel of death, and he is going to kill the firstborn of all the people, and of all the beasts. But, said, not even a dog will growl at the people of Egypt. Why will the people, or sorry, people of Israel, why will the people of Israel be saved? They will be saved because of the blood that they will put upon their doorframe. They will kill a young lamb without blemish, a spotless lamb, and they will put that blood over their door, And when God sees that blood over their door, he will pass over that house. He will not kill the people in that house. And in that way, the people of Israel will be saved. The framework for the story of the Passover and what God does is simple enough, is it not? It's clear why the people have to kill the lamb and put the blood over its door. After all, God has said he is going to take the life of the firstborn. And so if God is going to take the life of the firstborn, surely if he is not going to take the life of Israel's firstborn, then some life must be offered. And so God grants them a substitute. God says, I will let you substitute a lamb for the life of your own firstborn in order that you may not die. 
And this is the great story of the Passover. This is the final act of deliverance that God performs before he finally brings his people out from Egypt. This is the plague that will finally break the back of Pharaoh, even with his hardness of heart, and he will cast the people out from the land of Egypt. Of course, even then, Pharaoh will not utterly cast them out. He will regret his decision soon after so that God will, in the end, get his ultimate climactic victory over Pharaoh. But this plague of the Passover will be the one that finally lets the people of Israel leave Egypt and head toward the land that God has promised them. This morning, I want to look at this act of the Passover on two different levels. I want to look at it on its theological level. So what's the significance of so many of the the images and uh, uh, components of the ceremony that, that God puts into the Passover celebration? And then I also want to look at it on the practical level. Again, what does this say to us? How does this practically affect our lives today? It's important to look at the Passover on both of these levels because it is, of course, the theological reality of the Passover that grounds the practical benefit that it now has for us. And again, this certainly won't be any kind of exhaustive treatment of all that we have to learn from the Passover. That will take us several weeks. And of course, even in a few weeks of preaching, I won't be able to exhaustively look at the significance of the Passover. But this morning especially, again, I want to look at how the Passover was celebrated as the very first month of the year. It was a new calendar that was given to Israel in order to celebrate the Passover. And then from there, we'll look at what that means for us today. So, theologically, what is the significance of God saying that this will be a new month of the year for you? This will be a new year for you now that you are celebrating the Passover. Well, in the context of Exodus, we have to look at the rest of the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Bible, because Exodus is the second book of the Bible coming for us right after Genesis. And so the only other place in the Bible that we've seen so far where a calendar is ever mentioned is in the book of Genesis itself, is in the book of first things, the book of creation and the call of Abraham and how Israel came down to Egypt in the first place. And the only real kind of calendar we see established there is in the very first chapter of the book of Genesis, where God is creating the cosmos. And when Genesis talks about God creating the cosmos, Genesis pictures God as a workman going to labor over the course of a week, right? Genesis tells us that creation happened in six days, and then on the seventh day, God rested. And this, we understand, is now the foundation of our own calendar, right? Why do we have seven days in a week? Well, we have seven days in a week because God finished all of creation in seven days. And so ever since then, ever since the very beginning, we have seven days in our week. And this was the calendar that all of humanity lived on up until the Passover. But now, here on the Passover, God is saying, I am doing such a magnificent work, such an amazing work, such a powerful work that I don't want you to just follow the same calendar as all the rest of mankind. No, I'm going to give you a new calendar. I'm going to give you a new year. 
And because the calendar itself is associated with Genesis 1 and the creation of the world, we understand that God giving his people a new calendar is the same as God telling them that this is a new creation type of work. In other words, I'm not just kind of redeeming you out of Egypt so that you can then go on being the same sort of people. You can go on living the same sort of life, doing the same sort of things. No, my redeeming you from out of Egypt, my giving you a new calendar is to say, I am making you a whole new people. I am creating you anew. And I am indeed through this, I'm going to create a whole new cosmos. I'm going to create a whole new world. And that's why we need a new calendar. Because calendar, the days of the week, are associated with creation itself. Indeed, we see that when God gives the Passover as a celebration, he tells them to celebrate it for seven days. And again, this seven-day celebration is not just coincidence. It's not just God thought seven days would be a good practical rule or something like that. No, seven days is to remind us, is to echo the seven days of creation itself so that the people of Israel understand that this is epochal in its significance. This changes everything, right? This isn't just like another nice thing that God is doing for us. No, we are to reorient our whole lives around this event. We are to reorient our whole calendar around this event. This event is a whole new creation. It's God bringing into existence what was not before. And so that is the the main theological significance to the calendar being instituted on the Passover. It's to understand that this is new creation, just how monumental this work is of the Passover. Now, this theological significance, this new creation significance, how monumental this is, leads for the people of Israel and for us to a very great deal of practical significance, right? Practically, the people were given a specific ceremony that they were to celebrate every single year. At the very beginning of every year, they were to spend seven days. And we'll look at some of the things they were to do in those seven days over the course of the next few weeks. They were to eat only unleavened bread. They were to kill this lamb. They were to eat the lamb the night that it was killed. They were to have their belts on and the sandals on their feet ready to go. There was a lot involved in celebrating the Passover. But this was a very practical instruction that God gave to the people of Israel that this is what they were to do because in doing this, in doing this practical ceremony, this practical celebration, it helped them to remember, to understand the massive theological significance that God is accomplishing in the Passover. It helps them to remember that this is a new creation work. It helps them to remember, this is what makes us a people. And so it's through this annual celebration, where they celebrated year after year after year, that God instructed their hearts in just how central the Passover was for them as a people. Now, I think that we, as Christians, are to imitate the people of Israel in understanding the centrality of the work of the Passover that God did. Only for us, we understand, do we not, that we don't mainly celebrate the angel of death passing over the Israelites in ancient Egypt. No, we celebrate the wrath of God passing over us because Jesus himself shed his blood so that we can be free, so that we don't have to die, so that we can be saved. 
And so in the same way that the Passover was the central event of redemption that defined Israel, that said this is new creation for you, in the same way that it was that way for them, the gospel is to be that way for us. This is the central thing that we remember. This is the thing that we mark our calendars by. This is the thing that we celebrate year after year, Sunday after Sunday. We remember that it is this that is God's work of new creation, right? The gospel, Jesus' death on the cross in order to save us, is not just kind of one more thing that we believe, right? That we like line up right next to a lot of other great acts of God in history, or a lot of great other truth about who God is. No, the gospel is the main thing. It is the central thing that we remember for all time. Now, what is the significance of this for us? What's the practical significance for us? Well, I want to offer three ways that just this basic truth that the gospel is central, three ways that this basic truth should shape us. And I think that if we just look at this for a few minutes, we'll see just how profound this is and how deeply it should shape our lives. So the first reality, if the gospel really is central, if it is as central, as monumental as the Passover itself, the first reality this shows us is that we should be a grounded people. Okay, We should be a grounded people. By saying we should be grounded, I mainly mean that we should not be a people that go kind of chasing after every new fad that the culture brings in or every new fad that maybe some Christian teacher we like might be talking about or every new technique that we hear about, always thinking that it's the next thing that's going to kind of, you know, get us over the hump or it's the next thing that will really fix whatever problem we have and just thinking that if we can find the right technique or if we can find the right supplement or if we can find the right teaching or something like that, then our problems will be solved, then we'll be fixed, right? That is the opposite of being a grounded person. We should be grounded people when we understand the centrality of the gospel because we understand that it is the gospel itself, the blood of Christ, that heals us. It is the blood of Christ that cures us. It is the blood of Christ that saves us. It is the blood of Christ that redeems us. It is the blood of Christ that brings about new creation, right? Everything comes through the cross of Christ. And beloved, if everything comes through the cross of Christ, that means everything does not come through the new technique or through this special teaching or the special insight that this person over here had or whatever it is that's being sold to the public these days. I mean, it might sound profoundly boring to us. I'm sure it does sound boring to us in this age in which we live where people are always devoted to the, the new thing but we are supposed to remember the same thing every year, every day, every week. We don't jump to a new thing like saying, Lord, what is it that you want us to remember this year? Uh, what, what, what should we celebrate this week? No, we know what we should celebrate. We know the central thing, the biggest thing that God did. It is the cross of Jesus Christ, the Passover for us. This is what we celebrate. And so we are a grounded people. And when someone comes along promising some great success, if you'll just listen to this or that or take this or that, we say it's foolishness because it's not the cross. Because the cross is what brings about new creation. <clears throat> now, even more practically, let me just emphasize how radical this idea is in the culture that we live in. Now, 
In our sinfulness, human nature has always been prone to adore novelty, right? Always been prone to adore new things. But in our own present day and age, we are prone to do that all the more. I mean, this is what social media is, is it not? Is it is presenting novel things to us every day, right? Infinite scrolling. What's the latest thing that's been said on Twitter or on Facebook? What's the latest show to come out on the streaming networks? What is the latest thing that's happened? And sometimes we can feel like if we don't know the latest thing, if we're not in touch with the newest thing, that we're somehow missing out, right? There's even that acronym for it, F-O-M-O, right? Fear of missing out, FOMO, because we're so inundated with what is new. But again, beloved, the thing that helps us to escape this rat race The thing that helps us to not worry whether or not I know the newest thing that's coming out, what's happened today, what the famous person has just recently said, the thing that will get us out of this is to remember the centrality of the gospel. To remember that even if we don't know the newest thing that's happening, if we know the old thing that happened, (laughs) if we know what Jesus Christ did upon the cross in AD 31, then we will be saved. And the new creation will still happen, whether I know the newest thing or not. And so we will be a grounded people. That's the first thing I see in this reality of the annual celebration of the Passover. They remember the same thing year after year after year. It's not a new theme. It's not a new idea. It is the same thing. And so it is for us, beloved. Never move past the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your behalf. So we will be a grounded people. The second practical reality that this means for us is that we will be a remembering people, okay? We will be a remembering people, or you could say we will be a historically oriented people. Now, again, this is very different than what the world around us thinks about today. Today, people are more worried about being progressive, right? About being more up-to-date, about knowing what is around the corner. We don't look back, we would say. We look ahead. We think that people that look back, that look to history too much, that they're destined to be behind the times, that they're destined to not make a difference in the world. And it's only those who are forward-thinking, those who are always considering the future and coming up with new ideas, that it's those people that will really make a difference. But again, if God is wise... If God is right in instituting this Passover for his people, whereby every year they would remember what God did in ancient Egypt, and just consider how long the history of Israel has gone forward to this very day, and even before the coming of Christ, it's still over a thousand years for that to happen. So God knew when he put this in place, the celebration of the Passover in place, that generation after generation would be celebrating the Passover, even though They could not remember how many generations it had been since the Passover happened, right? But they were still to look back to a thousand years ago. We still today are to look back to 3,000 years ago, to this Passover taking place. And as we look back to the Passover taking place in remembering, we gain strength for our souls. We gain encouragement for our souls. You see, don't let the world convince you that looking back, that looking to history is somehow irrelevant or is somehow not worth your time. I mean, I know we don't all need to be historians 
God didn't design us all to like love history and want to read about everything that happened in the ancient past. But again, if you are a Christian, then by definition, you really, really care about at least one event in history, right? Jesus really did die upon the cross in 31 AD. He really was put to death by Roman authorities. His blood really was shed upon the ground for you and for me. And he really did rise again from the dead. And scripture itself tells us that if he did not rise again from the dead, if that is not a historical reality, then our faith is foolishness. We're still in our sins. Why do we believe in the first place if this isn't a true historical event? And so we do look back to history. We cultivate our memory and we don't apologize for that. Whereas the world around us may not remember what happened last week or last year, we remember, we look back to what Christ has done upon the cross, to his resurrection. We look back to the whole history of God's people. How God's kingdom, ever since its small beginnings in that upper room in Jerusalem, with the disciples trembling with fear because they thought they were all going to be killed. (laughs) We look back from there to where we've come today, and we see how God's faithfulness and the power of God's spirit has been poured out on his people generation after generation, so that now the gospel has been preached to nearly every people group in the whole earth. And we celebrate this. We remember history because history tells us, reminds us of the great things that God has done. It fuels our worship. It fuels our praise. It fuels our gratitude. And so don't be seduced by the world that says you have to be forward-thinking. Leave the past in the past. There are some things we do leave in the past, right? We leave our sins in the past. We leave our shame in the past, our guilt in the past. That's where Paul said, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what Christ has for me. So we forget our old self, our old man, and we press on to faithfulness, to fullness of Jesus Christ. But we press on in that way precisely because we can look back to the historical event of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we are unapologetically a historically oriented people. We don't just ask, what has God done for me lately? We don't just ask what happened last week that I can point to that shows that God loves me. No, we point to the cross of Jesus Christ. We say there, the love of God was proved once for all time. And even if I don't feel his love today, even if I haven't seen him deliver me from this thing that I'm in right now, I know that he loves me and I know that he is faithful because Jesus died upon the cross and because he rose again. And so we remember the great works of God in history. And we continually look back to them. Lastly, we will be a determined and a hopeful people. A determined and a hopeful people, or you could say determined in hope, right? Or determined hopefulness. Because we know that our full deliverance is yet to come. Now, one of the amazing things about how God instituted the Passover for his people is that they celebrated this first Passover when they had not even been delivered from Egypt yet, right? All these instructions that God gave them for killing the lamb, for eating it, for being ready to go out, they were doing all of that in faith. They were doing all of that in hope. And 
Indeed, the people of Israel at this point might have felt like they had very little reason for hope. I mean, after all, we've looked at the story where Moses first went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. Pharaoh made it worse for them, right? And now God has done nine whole plagues upon Egypt and Pharaoh has still not let them go. And so I would understand if the people of Israel are maybe starting to despair a little bit, like, is this even going to work? Is God ever going to get us out of here? And so even though that thought might be running through their minds, God comes into the story at this point and he tells his people, this is it. You're going to go right after this. So I want you to celebrate this big feast, this feast of unleavened bread and spreading the blood of the lamb over the door. Put your sandals on your feet because you're going to be ready to get out of here. And so the people originally celebrated Passover in hope and looking forward to what was to come. Now they looked forward in two main ways. One, they looked forward to the greater redemption that was coming in Jesus Christ, did they not? But they looked forward beyond that as well in the same way that we look forward to what Christ has done. We look forward to the return of Jesus Christ and our ultimate salvation on the judgment day of God. Again, if we look at how Passover itself relates to our lives, relates to us today, when in the Passover the angel of death went through Egypt and killed all the firstborn, How does that connect to us today? Where has the angel of death come in our own lives or upon our own world that we should be thankful, that we should praise God for the Passover? Well, of course, the answer is the angel of death has not come yet. God says that there is a day of judgment coming. And on that day of judgment, everyone will have to give an account to God. In other words, all of humanity right now, we in this room, everyone outside of this room, is under the wrath of God, is looking forward to the judgment of God. God will judge us. Now, we don't fear that day. We don't worry about that day because we know the verdict that God will pronounce in that day. He will pronounce a verdict of not guilty on account of the blood of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, that is the day of Passover that we are anticipating. God's wrath will pass over us when Jesus returns and we all stand before the throne of God in judgment. That is the ultimate Passover that we anticipate, that we look forward to. And because we celebrate the Passover right now, and of course we celebrate it most particularly in the Lord's Supper, but really in everything that we do when we gather on the Lord's Day, Because we celebrate it right now, we can look forward in hope to that day of judgment. That the angel of death will not destroy us, that God will not destroy us, but rather he will pass over us because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so, again, this makes us a determined people and a hopeful people. We don't march forward in our faith haltingly, wondering, if God is really going to show up for us, wondering if God is really going to rescue us, wondering if we can really rely upon him? No, through the death of Jesus on the cross. Romans 8.32 says that he who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? And so when we walk through our life today, when we look forward to the future, we laugh at the future. We look forward and hope. 
We march forward with confidence, knowing that if God is for us, then no one can possibly be against us. And so, thinking of the Passover, remembering the death of Christ, and when that ultimate Passover will happen, makes us a determined people and a hopeful people, because we know that the best, the final redemption, is yet to come. So we'll be a grounded people, a remembering people, and a determined people. Now, all of these things might sound like really nice to-dos, things that maybe you do feel obligated to keep or a person that you feel obligated to be like. But these things themselves will be simply dead principles if we individually and corporately do not experience the vital joy that comes through the gospel. You see, even though the Passover was a formalized celebration, even though God gave very clear principles, rules for how to celebrate the Passover, ultimately, the Passover was supposed to be just an explosion of joy, was it not? I mean, these people had been enslaved for over a hundred years. They had gone through the death of their own infants. They had gone through their slavery getting harsher. The plagues that fell upon Egypt, even though God spared his people, they certainly felt the effect of those plagues themselves. They were a very weak people, a people who had gone through much torment in Egypt. And what this Passover symbolized was ultimate freedom. And so even though there is this kind of formality around the Passover, within the Passover, the heart of Passover is an explosion of joy, an explosion of wonder at the liberation that God has won. And beloved, we in the new covenant, now knowing what Christ has done for us, should experience even greater joy than what the people of Israel experienced in being liberated from Egypt. Now, How do we bring this joy home to our hearts? How do we know? How do we so cherish the gospel that focusing on the gospel, that being grounded on that, that looking back to that is not just a duty that we have to perform because we're Christians, but it's actually a delight because we see how beautiful the gospel is. Well, I think the way we come to that is we just remember the basic truth of the gospel which is the same basic truth that we see in the Passover. We must remember continually the wrath that we ourselves were under. We must remember continually the mercy that God himself has purchased for us, that only Jesus' blood can save. And then we must apply that blood to our very hearts. So let's just rehearse this one more time. And just as I do this, I just pray that God will speak to your soul and remind you that these things really are true. And that if you believe these things, you really have been rescued. This isn't just a story. This isn't just a big idea. This is a reality living in your soul. So scripture plainly teaches that all of us, all mankind is under the sentence of death. That's us here in this room too. Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And moving up to Romans 2, 
Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Beloved, this is true. This is what is true for all mankind. The day of God's wrath is coming and no one will escape because God's character, God's righteous decree is plainly known to all of us in creation, in our consciences, and we all defy it. Therefore, we all deserve death. This is the most horrible thing imaginable. Not just death as in, I'll die tomorrow and be buried, but eternal death, spiritual death, eternal torment. And here is the glorious news that Jesus' blood can save us. That in the same way that God provided a lamb to be put over the doorframe of their homes, God provided a lamb to save us, to rescue us from our sins. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Where Hebrews Chapters 8 all the way through 10 meditate upon the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. Let me just read a small portion of this for you. It says, He, that is Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our own conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then finally, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, by Jesus' death on the cross, he perfected us for all time. Beloved, this is the best news. This is what we remember. And so this news, this blood, we don't simply apply to the door frames of our homes. We don't apply them to some physical object. We apply this blood to our very hearts. And so Hebrews, after meditating for so long on the significance of the blood of Christ, says, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Beloved, the blood of Christ has been shed upon your very heart, upon your very soul, that you may not taste death, but you may live forever and ever. When we internalize this truth, when we understand that the death of Christ was not merely some historical event that God accomplished, but it's something that God did for me personally, when we can say with the Apostle Paul that Christ died for me, gave himself for me, 
So that the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. When we can say that for ourselves, then we ourselves know the explosion of joy that wells up in our hearts so that we want to gaze and adore the gospel every day of our lives. We want to remember every day that Christ died for us, that he rose again from the dead for us. You see, then we will become a people who are grounded, a people who remember, a people who are hopeful, not because those are just things we're supposed to do, because they're things we delight to do, we want to do. And so this is why the New Testament teaches us very plainly that Jesus Christ was that perfect Passover lamb. The Gospel of John, in particular, has Passover as the whole framework for it. It mentions Passover no less than 19 times in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the Gospel of John is where Jesus turns the water to wine in the same way that Moses turned the river of the Nile to blood. It's in the Gospel of John where Jesus has seven I am statements where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd in the same way that Yahweh appeared to Moses in the burning bush saying, I am that I am. See, the Gospel of John in particular is reminding us that Jesus speaks to us a new and a better Passover story. And just like the book of Exodus where we see that a new calendar is given, that this is to be the first month in the same way the Gospel of John shows us that we are a people of a new creation with a new calendar. John tells us that Jesus uttered It is finished on the cross on the sixth day. That is Good Friday. He uttered, it is finished on that day. He rested on the Sabbath day. And then what happened on the eighth day? On the first day of the new creation? On that day, that is the day that Jesus rose again from the dead. So now we ourselves, as we celebrate on Sunday, as we celebrate on the Lord's Day, We have entered into the new creation. We have entered into the resurrection work that Jesus Christ has done. We don't just enter into some small historical event that took place that we happen to really appreciate. (laughs) No, we gaze at the cross, which is of cosmic importance, by which all things are being made new, by which we ourselves are being made new. And so when we look upon Jesus Christ, upon his death, upon his resurrection, when we have eyes of faith to believe that we really have been saved, that we've been redeemed, then our own hearts are flooded with joy and we go out in newness of life, with new creation life, to renew all creation through the proclamation of the gospel, that death has been defeated, that new life is being offered, and that one day Jesus will return that heaven and earth will be made one, that that final Passover will take place so that those who have trusted in Jesus Christ will enter into the presence of God forever and ever, rejoicing in all that Christ has done, living in glory all of their days. And so will you, together with me, be determined to focus upon this cross, this crux of all of human history, Focus upon this day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, 
till the very day that we die, that our own hearts may be filled with joy, knowing the glorious things that God has done. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for not merely redeeming your people from slavery in Egypt, but we thank you for redeeming us from death itself. We thank you that though we all deserved your wrath, even though we were all horrible sinners, for we know that even the least sin against your perfect and righteous love is a horrible sin, even though we were all horrible sinners, you nevertheless had mercy on us. Shed the blood of your own Son that you might pass over us, that we might be with you forever and ever. God, we praise you for this. Lord, as you redeemed people, we do come into your presence with boldness and confidence in prayer. Would you now hear us as your people as we pray, as we confess our sins, as we intercede for ourselves and those around us, that you would work in powerful ways. Hear us now, God, as we pray.